Welcome to Nota Bene. Nate, what's going on, buddy? Check Shemesh. Happy Passover. Happy Passover, Ben. How Come you on. doing, bud? Ah, I'm fantastic. Coming off a great little quick trip to Washington, D.C., where the folks live, where I was, you know, as you mentioned, celebrating our ancestors. How'd uh, you get down there? Train? Bus? Uh, plane? I, I drove, actually, uh, with uh, my, uh, my girlfriend was doing the driving, and, and I was sitting passenger uh playing on your phone as she did the work i was texting with you dude oh well you know, you know, and- so you were working basically <laughs> we're working you were here friday night though yeah i was here friday night. i was i was like i'd gotten the jab so still feeling the kind of like the post-vaccine kind of illness but it was gorgeous outside and all i could think of was to be like downtown hanging out was it just going off i i believe i sent you a picture from the belly of the beast clandestino and my lord were the dime square kids turning up it was a party in the street i mean i both kind of wish i was there i'm so glad i didn't have to see it yeah i mean it was it was like the children just all out and about me and and my friend george newell were sitting at a big table and it was just people coming by stopping by for a drink or two uh you know we were running into friends just walking like walking around it was surreal just incredible energy it's, it was, it's gonna be all, it's gonna be all summer buddy all it's summer gonna be long. it's gonna be the, the summer of the jab i know um anyway seder was good i hosted just yeah. me the in-laws kind of uh-huh. not so you know i used to like to have tons of people over but you know hey we're still in a pandemic mm-hmm. you I cooked mean, of course i cooked what the fuck i was gonna cook we had lamb it was fantastic so, so did i oh look at that i mean we both did lamb so i'm pretty sure mine was Great. better but that's okay Oh wow, ours is really good. Okay, I mean you were with, you were with like quote unquote grown up, so it probably was, but <laughs> I kind of knocked it out of the park. Um, I'm sure, I'm but sure I, was, you did. I was very excited because I have this Nicole Eisenman Seder plate that I got at the Jewish Museum a couple of years ago. Kind of funky, weird thing, but very cool. She obviously has like that iconic Seder painting that she's very uh-huh. well known for. Like every curator and wannabe curator posts their like uh, Instagram post on, on every Passover. Yeah. But I was like, we'll I was cruis- cru- cruising on the Instagram and uh, noticed that Laurie Simmons, uh, uh, artist and, and Tip Dunham, her husband, I presume was there. Yeah. Who was also using the same play to her Seder. I felt like we were like connected together. Of course. Felt good. Yeah. Do you see any good, do you see any good uh, Seder posts on the gram? You know what? I was, I was off the gram. I was trying to be present. Uh, in the moment, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was I was breaking all sorts of Sabbath laws. I'm sure. Oh yeah, totally. I was I was you know reading. I was doing a lot of the readings uh, in in English, not in Hebrew, uh, but you know, still just trying to you know be present in the moment and you know maybe catch a glimpse of the grams like you know every you're, hour or you're so. A better man than me. Anyway, so I was thinking about a bunch of stuff like what we're going to chat about ahead of our first our first episode. Obviously, we have a big interview with Joel Messler coming big up interview. in the second half, but like kind of like thinking about what was going on in the art world. One thing that kind of I guess annoyed me is the right phrase is that there's this amazing David Hammond show up at the Drawing Center. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable show focusing on his his body prints. One of the more fully formed shows of work by him that's ever been presented. Totally like New York native show and that it was curated by Laura Hoffman, the director of the Drawing Center um, and uh, originated here. It hasn't been this large a collection of that body of work ever put together. Right. And it opened like at the beginning of February, I think like February 3rd or 8th or something like that. And it finally got a Times review and it was like one of those half reviews like kind of critics pick style. Like not quite a, like one of the brief gallery ones but not quite like a full splashy one. And like a month and a half, almost almost two months uh, after it opened, opens in the middle of the book, not on the front page of the art section. Obviously, there was the Julie Maritou show, which is, you know, a huge museum show at the Whitney, uh-huh. also deserving of a huge review. And it got like splashy full color. It did. It didn't originate here, though. This is a show that no, came from LA. No, it was a LACMA yeah. show that just mm-hmm. traveled. Whereas, I mean, the the Hammond show, the Drawing Center. One, the Drawing Center has been crushing it. I, I I don't know if you've seen what they've been doing, you know, since you know we've sort of been back after the panty. Uh, 
but even the just, panty, I like that. Oh yeah, the panty. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do the demic, you know. Uh, like I, so I, I switch it up. You have to switch it up because I, you know, how many times can we just refer to it as like the thing or all of this? I'm waving my hands. Um, but uh, you know, there was a group show over the summer. I think it was it was a hundred artists. There was the conceit, and it was fabulous. It was it was not at all an afterthought. Every artist really gave what was a really really incredible work. And yes, they were all quote unquote they were drawings. You know, it was the drawing center, but a lot of them really investigated what it was to be a drawing. And I think that the Hammond show kind of jumped off of that and really examined his practice in the context of what he was doing and 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 how it was drawing. And uh, that that's just one thread that you can pull from what's truly an incredible show. Um, but uh, maybe the drawing center is, is, is just not getting, uh, you know, the the glow up that it needs. Is that it? Yeah, I don't, it just seemed like a like a bad choice of the time, just going after the big museum. And I'm, this is not taking anything away from the Whitney, the Whitney show, Julie Merrick too, like also an artist that's deserving uh, of all the press that she's getting. But there's, I mean, there's enough space in the paper where that could have come out like three or four weeks ago. And it just feels like they were just kind of like, Oh, it's the it's the big museum. We could ignore the little one, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's just like their PR agents are like better or, or yeah. at rubbing ass. But I just like it. It rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't like it. Um, mm. No beef to Farago, our boy who wrote the Meritu review. By yeah, the way. no, no, no. It's it's not about it's not about either or. It's about like why not have both? Um, and I feel like a missed opportunity to kind of give a lot of love to a local institution. My guess is like is even tougher to keep going in this time than a major institution with a huge endowment totally. uh, like the Whitney. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, no like no lack of love towards the Whitney. Um, nothing but love, and especially towards Rue, who is the local... Rue is Hickey, incredible. Uh, ...who took over, uh, you know, kind of brought it brought it to New York and, and is, is brilliant in her own right. Um, just, I think, it was like a, a, a bad look on the Times. So that's that on that. I don't have, I don't have anything productive to say. Just, just do better. New York Times, art section. Come on, boys. Do better. And girls. And girls, um, right? <laughs> Colloquially, boys. Don't you know get what I mean. canceled in our first episode. Man. Come on, bro. <laughs> y- y'all know what I mean. Um, so I got an email. Uh, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm betraying any confidence. Over the weekend, as a as an art advisor, which is my day job, from Freeze, and they outlined kind of like the process for having clients come to the fair and all the the kind of medical stuff. I've been. I think publicly a little bit suspicious of doing a fair right now and if, in, in New York and if it was right and if free should be going forward. Um, but it seems like they're doing everything that they can do the right way in terms of you have to have PCR tests and or proof of vaccination, mm-hmm. uh, very, very limited time slots when you can come in, no in and out. I mean, they're doing their best that they can. I'm still not certain if other than to their bottom line affair is so necessary right now. Right. But but uh, I'm feeling better about it. It looks like it's 100% going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. And Freeze is definitely doing everything it can in its power to not get sued. Of course, that's what it's about. I was thinking they were just doing a great job because they wanted to do it. Come on. Think about it. Uh, you know, I'm despite being an art advisor dealer, I'm so naive at heart. <laughs> like, there, this is airtight. There is every possible requirement they could possibly impose on how uh people are allowed into this fair uh, do you think do you think people from outside new other than art dealers or advisors do you think clients are f- gonna fly in like are people from la coming in for this maybe a few uh i i've talked to some people who have and this has kind of surprised me have said that they are flying in for the fair people are obviously restless and they want to travel and if you're vaccinated i think the cdc says you know you can travel you can hang out with other vaccinated people inside without a mask 
uh, there's no shame in, in, in doing these things if you're fully vaxxed. But this is not, it's not just vaccinated, which would be one thing. So it's either a vaccine, proof vaccination, or a PCR test from the past 72 hours. Right. But as we well know, you're potentially at your most uh, contagious before a, P- a PCR test would even show as positive. Right. And I'm, I'm referring to people who are vaccinated, making a personal choice for themselves. Um, I think that the, the, the risk of, uh, you know, getting or spreading disease if you're vaccinated is, is relatively low. Uh, again, not an epidemiologist here. I'm a uh, <laughs> gossip columnist. You know, I almost was, but I decided that, you know, that would be too easy. I was just going to become an art advisor instead. Um but yes, there is the uh, uh, possibility that someone with a negative PCR test could be carrying the disease. I don't, I don't want to be negative or a hater because like, I love art fairs. I miss art fairs so much. I mean, A, my pocket misses art fairs a lot because I tend to do a lot of oh, business yeah. at them. But also just like I miss seeing the people and having the conversations, like the dinners. And so I, I don't want to be a hater, but I'm still like a little bit. I came into this one to talk about this being like, oh, I think they're doing a great job. But the more as we sit here and I'm like. Uh, like what about the people that are cleaning up the booth? They're saying like, oh, there's going to be yeah. enhanced cleaning. Are those people going to be vaccinated or given the opportunity to ensure mm-hmm. they're vaccinated? Uh, the young people working the booths, you know, outside of gallery owners, like are we gonna, who are at, at the bottom of the list for vaccinations, that looks like as of today, at least New York residents of all ages uh, in April will be eligible. So before, yes. is that before? Uh, it is. It's it's uh, uh, May fourth. I think is the VIP day. Okay. But that doesn't mean everyone will be vaccinated. Yeah. Um, um, so I just feel like there there are a lot of holes, and I understand fairs. I mean, talk about for their pockets, like need to start producing fairs again, mm-hmm. um, outside of the online ones. But um, I mean, you know, people are going to go to Mets and Yankees games this week. You know, it, it, but that's. I mean, I understand that the freeze is going to be kind of out of doors, with the open air, but there's still a ceiling. I mean, yeah, these are out. Yeah, but people going to Knicks games. If anyone has tickets for a for a Mets opening day. Uh, oh my god. At Mr. Nota Bene is looking for, for two DMs. tickets to every day. <laughs> Please, Lord. Who do you think I'm going to take, man? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. You have to no, bring you your wife. No, okay, good, yeah. good. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, before we get into our kind of really wide-ranging interview with Joel Messler about his history as a, as a, as an, as a dealer and as an artist, and, and especially now as an artist who's really kind of like, he's having his market moment. I mean, his pictures are very hard to get. People are thirsting for them. I think there's a fairly active secondary market trade. There is. In them, um, the auction sales have been good so far. Um, you recently wrote about another artist that's having a market moment, but with at least to me a little bit less history in, in the market. Robert Nava, who who just had a show. Uh, he just had a show at Vito Schnabel's Vito gallery, Schnabel, yeah, the first show at at, at Vito's Vito? new gorgeous space, uh, 19th Street in Chelsea. Are you are you a paid PR agent for Vito now? One 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 lunch one lunch at Parm hey, and hey hey hey, it was not Parm, it was at Carbone. You're not so you're not so cheaply purchased. <laughs> no, I, I I really think that anyone who sees Vito's gallery is going to be kind of wow. It is pretty Vito. I'm sorry, I love. It's really really pretty. Uh, but but you know before I saw the gallery or even really knew that the Vito was was showing Rob, um, I was interested in the work and the response to it in the market because this is work that is not t- the typical kind of um, paintings that that are are being traded for. You know these increasingly crazy numbers on the secondary market. They're they're very polarizing. They are not uh, easy to like. Faux intellectual. You know they're 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 very much. They're in- full. If they're, they're full naive. I yes. Think that's the, like, yes. 
they are very much in line with the bad painting of the 80s that by which i mean like you know kippenberger and ulin um and their cohort but also this is not the kind of stuff that you would expect to be sort of was becoming that and i wanted to investigate that phenomenon and uh in doing so i went to 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 rob's studio uh spent a lot of time talking to him talking to his dealers talking to his collectors and started to sort of understand the appeal uh, that, that, that people have for him. And, and, and I also started to appreciate the way in which he thinks about making his paintings and how he, he, he makes them. I'm not, you know, a pig critic. I don't really offer my own critical opinion, but I do sort of, uh, I think, start to solve why this is uh, uh, something that is not only like very polarizing, why people just really hate the work and why people really love it, but why, despite this polarization, it's becoming... Um, uh, traded at higher and higher numbers. His market's just really kind of going nuts, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a. I don't have a horse in the race. Uh, I hear he's a very nice guy, and like I, I kind of love seeing Vito doing well. And I actually thought the show was like kind of more powerful than I'd previously mostly just seen the images in, in JPEGs right. or, or whatnot. I, um, I, I think that a lot of people, when they see, especially the show of Vito's Gallery, which is the, his first solo show in New York, they'll start to rethink their their absolute uh you know uh revulsion at them if if that was their their opinion which was never my opinion i i, I was always just sort of uh, uh not sure what i thought but and, and i bring it up sort of just because joel in an interview with the we're about to roll said something really interesting about being a populist and embracing being uh-huh. a populist and making art that people can like and nova is different in that people either like it or don't but there's exactly. something i would still say there's a populism to it and that it's a very accessible form of painting yeah and i think that that you know once you sort of get to know him and talk to him that's kind of where the populism comes in. He he sort of explains his approach to the things that that he just just really uh, uh, loves deep down unapologetically, and you know that's why he's painting these dragons and these you know monsters and these angels. There's these these things that he just like connects to very deeply. And I think the people who connect with him connecting with that like the paintings, but also I think people who don't care about the things like the paintings because they're 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 really well done, and because they know if they can get one, they can sell it for triple. Well, there you go. There you go. That's the advice. And that'll lead into a a very different and and, and long-form interview with our friend Joel Messer coming up right after this. We're joined by Joel Messler, uh, artist, gallerist, musician, father, friend. Am I leaving out anything, Joel? Um, I am most of those things most of the time, yes. Yeah. And we love you for it, and uh, and also a fantastic friend of both Nate and mine um, for many years. And we just wanted to, I mean, obviously we're calling you and want to speak with you because you just had this amazing show. Um, not your first show, but I think really your first big show out in Los Angeles, your your hometown with David. My Cord- first adult show. Adult, adult show. Uh, with David Kordansky Gallery, and it was like a mega success, at least from what I could tell on Instagram. Everyone went to go see it. It looked amazing. I mean, the, the images were out of control. I think it was probably very commercially successful. Um, how did it feel? Was, did it feel good? Was I mean, it's a weird time. You didn't get to go out there. But like, what was it like after, after doing so many things uh, over so many years to kind of have this moment? Well, you know, it's funny because as you both know, as my good and long friends, I am from Los Angeles. And so when I... Uh, had been asked to do the show. I thought of the show like, oh my God, this is my homecoming. And I went through every little memory box I had about Los Angeles and every nook and cranny from my childhood and my parents' marriage uh, 
contracts and my bar mitzvahs and my videos of my births and things like that. And I, I put so much weight on the show, you know, and then it turns out I can't even attend this show and see the paintings and put all this, you know, Michigas to the show. And then I can only see it from, you know, people like FaceTiming walking through and it just shows you, you know, you, you really can only control what you can control. You yeah, know you what I'm saying? You can't go home again. You can't go home again. As, as <laughs> um, I mean, just backing up, you mentioned, as we know, you grew up in Los Angeles. What was that like? Like, what was your childhood like? Was, a, 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 was it art well, focused or kind of what, what was going down? I mean, not to bore your ears uh, with Never. this again, but maybe your listening audience doesn't know that my parents uh, divorced Dr. Morse Messler and uh, Laura uh, Rogel. Uh, their divorce changed California law. And uh, my, uh, my half-sister, who actually went to UCLA to be, uh, law school, um, uh, she never practiced. Uh, but uh, actually no joke, was taught by her professor, Messler versus Messler. And this case, essentially, there was always a separation between probate court, divorce court, and bankruptcy court. And uh, and they actually, my mother's attorney, Andrew Zanger, uh, helped bridge these courts so you could bring in the files and the paperwork from court to court. And uh, another thing Andrew Zanger once said is uh, anytime doctors and lawyers are getting into certain markets, it's time to sell. So essentially, you know, my father being a cardiologist with a bad cocaine addiction mm -hmm. uh, really fucked my mother and my brother and I over. And uh, so my life in Los Angeles was great until we uh, weren't wonderful citizens of Beverly Hills anymore. How, how old were you when the, when the, the divorce was happening? I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, true story, my mother um, on a bedsheet, a white bedsheet, wrote, Dr. Morris Messler of 1512 Wilshire Boulevard. That's where his office was. Uh, it Turn the water off on his kids and his wife. And they're squatting in this house. And she hung it over the second floor balcony. And it was right on the corner of Alpine and Carmelita. And the mayor of Beverly Hills uh, called Andrew Zanger and asked her to uh, ask him to have my mother take it down. And he said, why don't you ask her? <laughs> <laughs> so that was, a, that was an early experience with painting, vernacular painting, perhaps, on the bedsheet. Yes, very much so. And then, you know, from then, you know, I slowly slid into drugs and alcohol and and, uh, you know, I, I certainly was looking for a father figure and, you know, my mother, uh, uh, you know, she couldn't, she wasn't the best, let's say, uh, you know, single mother of two. She tried her best, but she didn't have the right tools. So, you know, it was, it was a, you know, I was a wandering kid walking through the streets of uh, actually Speedway in Venice Beach. Uh, and I spent many, many of my nights in high school uh literally in venice doing lots of drugs and and getting to know myself um were you like a were you like a music kid or a skate kid or graffiti kid kind of what was your what was your scene like well uh i loved drugs so <laughs> that's uh, a scene we we had a friend ethan kleinberg uh who's actually a teacher now professor of uh intellectual history at vassar uh uh don't mind my uh, academic name dropping. Ouch, my foot. 
Um, but uh, we would go to his house and we would say, what do we want to do this weekend? We could do, you know, back in the day we used to do, you know, this is several years, you know, many years ago, we, XC was big and mm. meth and, and we did acid and we did mushrooms. And so we would spend the, the weekend doing whatever drugs. And a lot of times we would listen to Iggy Pop mm-hmm. and, you know, we, there's just a group of us and we just hang and, and lots of drugs. I had dreadlocks at this point. And um, uh, Beth Thompson, the lead singer of the band Medicine, um, would put yogurt in my dreadlocks and rub them together to try to give me uh, stronger locks. And, uh, uh, she was gay and I was the first man that she had slept with in eight years. And, uh, we were quite close. I kind of want to know more about that, but I'm going to move on. Um, kind of okay. pulling, pulling out of the high school. I mean, were you do, were you making art then? Were you like a kid that would mm. kind of doodle on his notebook or yeah, what led you to art school from there? So I, um, I, I, uh, I was going to stay in Los Angeles and, um, uh, when I had come home to my mother uh, my senior year of high school and I was crying and I said, oh, my God, Jake and Seth and everyone's going to college. And I didn't even apply. You know, I was going to just stay in L.A. because I had no plans. And she said, I, I applied to Sonoma State University for you, Joel, and you got accepted. And I was like, you did? Wow. My good friend Dave Lake had gone there the year before. And she wrote my essay for me and oh, everything. Amazing. And, oh, and um and so I went to Sonoma State as a psychology major because that's what she put down. And um, I loved psychology. And I, uh, I was in this program called the Learning Community in uh, Sonoma State University. And I got to meet, you know, girls with the names like Rainbow and Summer and um, actually Spring. I'm not joking. And uh, they were wonderful people. And I took a welding class uh my second year at college and I loved it and I welding and making art. So it's and, interesting. Uh, you came from like a very physical form of art making, like a very tactile sculptural thing. And then kind of, and that was your entry point. I suppose most people started out kind of like doodling and drawing. I feel like. Yeah, no, I was literally pouring like, you know, bronze. I worked in a foundry and I was, we were pouring aluminum and bronze and I was TIG welding and MIG welding. And I mean, I literally, my, I lived in Pengrove on an acre and a half and we had a scrap yard and we tried to make a helicopter in our backyard uh, one go? time, but just, oh, it didn't get off the ground at all. Oh, okay. Not even, uh. yeah. Um, that, wow. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, and I mean, San Francisco, it, was, it has a very San Francisco vibe, right? And almost kind of like pre-Burning oh, Man, oh. like kind of like, destro- you know, kind of like DIY kind of vibe feeling to it. To oh, my ear. we made our own, uh, we made our own absinthe with wormwood wow. and every season, you know, we would have absinthe parties and we, it was just Northern California, just, you know, one, one uh, year Binky, uh, her name was Binky and she had dreadlocks. She was a witch. And uh, mm-hmm. I came into my room one day after Binky was there and I was like, Binky, what did you do? The room feels different. And she, we were in an argument. And so I had to, I, I felt like spiritually the room was not good. And so I called Rainbow mm-hmm. and Rainbow <laughs> came over and Rainbow actually looked under my pillow and found her fingernails under my pillow. Mm-hmm. And so 
uh, she actually had to cleanse my room, and I didn't enter my room for 48 hours. It's very Northern That's California. That's some black magic shit. Then. I know. That's Rainbow dark sounds a little oh, really yeah. fantastic. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, Rainbow was, oh. it seems like a ray of light, but that other girl, Blinky, Binky? Yeah. Oh, I, I, Binky I was, was just tragic. She was from Tarzana. I was slightly <laughs> con, con, you know, concerned about the combination of helicopters and absinthe and witches, but Rainbow seems to have assuaged all my fears there, so I think you're fine. Yeah, Rainbow is just she made, uh, this amazing magical tea that uh, uh, slippery a uh, slippery elm. That's good for the sees. throat. Good for the throat. Yeah, exactly. Um, and did you did you stay up there for a while after undergraduate, or did you go to graduate school? Like, uh, or do you? No. Have... So I um, is funny. I uh, after that, I uh, I moved to Israel to Jerusalem. Um, it's in the Middle East, and uh, <laughs> I. Huh. I've been actually. It's 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 oh gorgeous. Yes, place. It's, it's it's magical. I mean, another. It's not the binky kind of magic. It's a different kind of magic. <laughs> but they call them Kabbalists there. But uh, <laughs> I studied at a yeshiva, and um, I was there many, 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 many months. And I lived in a kind of a dorm room, and it was I was a, considered a balachuva, which means uh, return to God. Mm-hmm. And it's somebody who's not raised as an Orthodox Jew, uh, but wants to return to the word and so i studied uh and i i almost stayed there they started to set me up on shidduchs which are dates where uh, a man and a woman will be accompanied by somebody in a public space like a hotel lobby or something and you can't touch or anything and you get to know somebody and so you start the the process of getting married and uh my mother uh tried to get me home and uh, finally, I came home because I had applied and gotten into San Francisco Art Institute uh, on a full scholarship. And so she, I forgot the deal we made, but, uh, but I came back and went to San Francisco Art Institute and I had to weigh my options. You know, do I become an Orthodox Jew living in Jerusalem or do I become like a hipster cool guy in San Francisco? And I picked the hipster cool guy in San Francisco. But I mean, not that anything's a binary choice, but it's almost like you had the opportunity to choose between God and secular spirituality being art. Mm, I've never thought of it like that, but no, God, you're good. I I mean, mean, is is that right? Or am I just kind of overstating the case? It's a hundred percent right. I mean, it's, it's really is true. I found that I was always on the outside, even when you know my Mishnah was pretty thorough and I knew kind of the the arguments, I still never felt part of, and I never felt like I truly belonged in that environment because I wasn't raised that way. And so I did feel by being with the kind of the misfits and the bad kids and the the druggies, I felt kind of myself. You felt more um, embraced by the spirit in a way amongst that kind of crowd. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and who did you study under in San Francisco? Ooh, a like lot that. of conceptual artists, actually. Paul Koss, mm-hmm. uh, Doug Hall. Um, there were painters there like Sam Chikalian and very kind of painterly painters. And I I don't know. I didn't quite have an appetite for just pushing paint around. And, uh, and what so, kind of stuff? Were, were you painting or were you printmaking? You what was your... I was both printmaking and painting, and I, um, I was, uh, you know, I like any good art student was just making horrendous art, 
thinking that it, it was just the greatest thing ever. And I, I actually, um, I, at the end, when I had my like final thesis thing, they told me I, I was passed with reservations. They were like, this is just so bad that, you know, and you can't even talk about it that we don't even really want to pass you. But, you know, I was on full scholarship, so they probably would have looked terrible if they not passed me. Grad school for making bad art and bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, bad art and then, and, and decisions. but I mean, I next kind of pick up your thread of my, my knowledge and let me know if I'm missing out a big chapter is like, we next find you in Chinatown in Los Angeles in the early 2000s, late 90s? Yes, yeah, so 1999. I mean, stop me if I bore you, but... This um, is not boring, Joel. Okay, thank you, Nate. Uh, in 1999, uh, I moved back to L.A. after San Francisco Gardens, too, because every student either went to New York from San Francisco, went to New York or L.A., and me being that I had no real options or you know any career, I went to L.A., and I had a couple friends that were doing, sh- had done shows uh, with China art objects in Chinatown. And so I went to Chinatown Chunking Road. And there were a couple, every building was either for lease or for sale. No joke. Every fucking building. And the rent on one of these ground floor spaces were, was 1,500 square feet. And to buy the building, which was the ground floor, a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment above and 1500 square foot basement was $240,000. Wow. So uh, my mother owing me one for coming back and leaving, you know, my spirituality in Jerusalem lent me $30,000. And I literally sitting behind me is my promissory note to my mother, uh, all my payments with interest. Um, and I bought the building with her help for $242,000 with closing costs. And Steve Hansen and Francis Stark rented my apartment upstairs. They paid me $1,250 a month. And I opened a gallery and lived in my basement. And my mortgage was cheaper than the rent that Steve and Francis were paying me. So I, I was, you know, I now had the successful gallery that literally didn't need to make any money. You were already wheeling and, and dealing and you didn't even need to show, show anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and you sometimes you didn't show anything, if if I recall. Exactly. Sometimes I I literally the, for this one show, Dave Deeney, we just laid a wood floor down, and he put um, blue lights under the wood floor and jacuzzi smells, and that's all it was for a whole show. That sounds like a um, great show, really. Oh, it was so magical. Another Ooh. show. Uh, Charles Irvin uh, took a Viagra and stripped naked, mm-hmm. and it, he called it uh, breaking boundaries. And he <laughs> did, uh, and he started breakdancing. Um, it's like very Vito Acconci seedbed esque. <laughs> Somehow yeah, less pleasurable. Yeah. <laughs> it was. And one time I moved. There was a uh, a store. Um, Gene Young had a store. Uh, a Chinese uh, like boutiques and gifts, and uh, she was closing, and so. It was the mirror image of my uh, store. And so we moved her entire store into my building, which was kind of like, you know, the white box. So it was interesting to have, you know, Chinese gifts and, and you know, paraphernalia in a gallery because everyone would come by and be like, wasn't this a gallery? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, anti-gentrification at work, you know. Amazing. So- what, what was the name of the gallery, Joel? Uh, happy! Oh, that gallery is my gallery Your is gallery. called Diane Proust. 
And Gene Young's store was called The Happy Lion. There, was there a um, Diane Proust? I, I believe there was not, correct? No, no. So Diane uh, Proust was the street my mom lived on. Mm-hmm. And since she gave me the $30,000 loan, I named it after her. And Diane just sounded wealthy. But a funny <laughs> anecdote, I have one. Uh, Patrick Painter, the first show I had, came in. And, you know, we'd always know when Patrick Painter came to Chinatown because you'd hear the roar of his red Ferrari, you know. And, he was a pretty invisible so, guy, right? <laughs> Oh, just just atrocious. Uh, he would always say, you know, OGLB, Long Beach, original gangster. Like, what a fool. And uh, and so he came into the gallery and he goes, can I use your bathroom? Is Diane here? I was like, no, Diane's not here. And he made a really smelly uh, number two in my bathroom. And he came out and he said, how's Diane doing? You know, and I was like, well, she's in Austria right now. You send her my love. You tell her Patrick said hello. <laughs> And uh, I got a lot of joy from that exchange. I love, and I mean, this was like just to set the stage. I mean, Chinatown and LA at this period. I mean, it was totally popping. It was the place, Los Angeles, for oh, all the young art, right. all the young galleries. Who cool. else was around? Like, who who were the characters? Like, I you know, of that era, that micro era. That what? Of of that era. Who were the main characters who were just around on? Oh, uh, in Chinatown. Well, I would say so. Giovanni Intra, who started China Art Objects with Steve Hansen, was definitely an integral part of early Chinatown. You know, he he wrote for art and text and art form and and uh, he went to Art Center. And so he brought this whole kind of uh, very kind of cerebral uh you know, group to Chinatown. And then you had down the road, you had Black Dragon Society where Roger Herman and Hubert Schmollix, who are professors at UCLA, were bringing down their kind of, you know, I would say not anti-academic, but very kind of uh, scrappy kids. So you had like, you know, the Jason Rhodes uh, kind of camp, you know, and then you would have, let's say, more of the... uh, the Francis Stark camp, you know, and, and so you had all these very interesting forces happening. Javier Perez moved down. Um, God bless his soul. I remember he came and invited us to a party and was petting his poodle and introduced himself and told us he was a very successful lawyer in San Francisco, but he was hoping to open a gallery and invited us to a party. And I remember going to the party and Asian punk boy was uh, downstairs in the basement doing a performance. And he said, welcome, help yourself upstairs to the party favors. And upstairs was, I'm not joking, a crystal bowl full of more cocaine than I've ever seen in my life. And uh, it was self-serve. And I've never seen people not be so uh, aggressive with the cocaine. Everyone was just... There was enough. There was literally enough to go Somehow around. Somehow, the plenty men people didn't feel that kind of uh, that kind of uh, uh, need to need to be animals. Uh, it's, it's yes, quite like no, heaven, really. it, it was magical. It was just magical, and, and Chinatown just had this, you know studios were there. Jorge Pardo had his studio there, um, and, in which he eventually opened a bar. And Pay White was very involved there, and and Laura Owens was around, and. There were cafes and bars like Hop Louie. I eventually started bartending at Hop Louie. Uh, I was the only round eye. They called me a round eye. Uh, that ever, ever, you know, poured a drink at Hop Louie. I was part of the family. And uh, 
I had a very large tab there too. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was a playground. It was like Disneyland playground for adults trying to find themselves or or semi adults. Um, and I mean, you, you were really part and it was, you know, I wasn't there, but it was kind of a beautiful time in, in Chinatown, right. Until it started to get a little bit dark around the edges. Oh, it was incredible. You know, so Giovanni, I remember he, um, he, he he and Eric Wesley had gone to New York to scout scout out. He actually uh, was offered a show at Metro Pictures, and they went to New York. They met with them, and everything went good. He bought himself a pair of Margiela shoes, and he came back, wow. and he told us how it was the greatest trip. They were, Eric was going to do a show at Metro. Things were good. You know, he's like, I literally bought my first par- pair of Margiela's, and uh, – and you know things were good. There were lots of drugs, needless to say. And and when Giovanni, for Eric's show, you know, ended up unfortunately uh, overdosing uh, in New York, um, I feel like that was almost the beginning of the dark cloud in in Chinatown a little bit. And how, um, how much longer were you there before you decamped for New York, where you and I met up? And the story continues. Like what year? What well, year did you this leave? was. Well, so this was like 2002, and I, I kind of had my little journeys of selling the building and getting a studio and a music studio. I left Chinatown in 2006 after um, having developed a building with uh, Daniel Hoog, who's the director of Art Cologne now, and we rented uh, part of the space of David Cordansky Gallery. And a lot of the um, – all the buildings in Chinatown were – pretty much owned by these um, benevolent associations. And so anytime they wanted artists in their buildings, they would come to me. And so I had a lot of leases in Chinatown, which made it harder for me to leave because I was, uh, you know, an alcoholic just living. Like I literally had like six buildings uh, in Chinatown. It didn't cost me a dollar. And uh, it was quite a nice life. And I uh, eventually, you know, there was about a year where, Chinatown really started to Javier moved to Culver city and Dave Cordancy moved to Culver city. And it was clear that black dragon society and China art objects were going to leave pretty soon. And it all happened very quickly. And I, uh, I met a girl and sold her a $1,200 print and, uh, picked up my guitar and, and moved to New York. Amazing. So you, I mean, I you, you. you were really the mayor of Chinatown. And by the time I'm by the time I met you, you were fast becoming the mayor of the Lower East Side. And you had a gallery there, but it was a really interesting model of gallery and that you rental. didn't have an artist roster or anything like that. Um, do you want to tell me about rental and kind of how it worked and what the like, what the, the genesis of that idea was? Yeah. So rental, actually, the first uh, incarnation started in Los Angeles with Daniel Hoog and I, uh, we were getting, because Chinatown was so active, all these artists were coming into town and their dealers like Roster Gallery from Poland or Christian Nagel from Berlin. These, uh, at that point, Ibid from London had come and these dealers needed a place. They wanted a place to show their artists in Los Angeles because all of a sudden Los Angeles was getting all these very well-known collectors and, you know, that were bought internationally. And so we actually started the rental model in Los Angeles um, and it made absolutely no money, but because, you know, uh, 
Los Angeles' frontier land, you know, it was just incredibly cheap. When I moved to New York, I attempted to try to make a living with this model. And I actually tried to get on Shark Tank because I thought it was such a good model. <laughs> but essentially what it is is that you, instead of, you know, at, at this point, you know, you're a big gallery, you, you give your artist to another gallery, and you end up getting 15%. But what if you wanted to show that artist yourself in this whole city and you wanted to keep 35% for yourself? So I would say, hey, I could be your shell. You give me the 15%, you keep the 35%, and it's a win-win for everybody. And so I calculated the overhead of the gallery, which was about $8,000 a month. Can you believe it? Including all and the salary to you or just for the, the raw physical stuff? Just for the raw physical space, the mm. bills, and to pay uh, Philip Dealey, who is my uh, associate director at that time, mm. who's now doing, I, I believe, ayahuasca journeys in Hawaii. Amazing. Uh, but I thought this would be a perfect situation. You pay my overhead, and then any sales on top, now I am getting drinking money, right? So it worked, but as the art market started to froth up a little bit i realized all of these people around me were making money and i was working just as hard as them and i was you know still living on a dirty mattress you know in the storage room behind the gallery and so without a shower mind you and so i decided mm. slowly to start representing and working with artists myself because i guess that was you know the thing i was missing ride that gravy train you know yeah, yeah. Man. So, you know, I started with a small handful of artists, Henry Taylor, Matthew Chambers, Brendan Fowler, and those were my, like, three Legends first kind of core artists I started working with. I mean, all all L.A. guys, right? Um, did, exactly. Had, had you known them all from L.A. time, or did you meet them kind of along the way? All L.A. times. I mean, I've I've, you know written and spoken about you know henry taylor was cooking steaks one day outside his studio in chinatown los angeles and you know i i met him that way i'd never met quite character quite like him before and and brendan fowler you know was a musician uh who i had known before he stage name was bar and he was doing some you know weird los angeles trippy stuff and and matt chambers was a librarian at an art center who was my unofficial uh print uh assistant uh and so you know slowly we all they all you know we found our voices and they were the artists and i was the the art seller um i mean it's kind of incredible and especially if you think of someone you know someone like henry um you know, and, and along this time, like, so you'd also, I, I, we didn't bring this up, but in Los Angeles, you've been making prints. Did you continue, like, having a print shop in New York, or you left that behind? So, well, so, God, I, I, it's so wonderful to talk to you about this, Ben, because I feel like, you know, you know me too. so well. I, when I moved to New York, I, uh, I didn't quite, before I opened rental, I didn't quite know what to do. And, and my girlfriend at the time really wanted me to buy her expensive clothes. So I knew I had to make money. And so I, I, I knew very little people at this point. I knew Heather Hubs uh, from NADA, and I knew Darren Bader. And Darren, at this point, I reached out to Darren, and Darren was working for Gavin Brown. And Passerby was still uh, open, but I guess Gavin had given Darren Bader the back of Passerby to 
essentially run Darren's programming until they were going to close, lose their lease. And so Darren, we made a deal with Gavin where I would do prints with his artists and others, and I would have to give him one print from every edition I did. And Gavin one print. It was incredible. And we did it with free booze. You know, I, this was, uh, you know, as a good alcoholic, you've got to find your local drinking hole that you could, you know, get cheaper free drinks. Mm-hmm. And so I had finally found it. And I would do prints with like Rick Ritt and get free drinks, do prints. And I was acquiring like this amazing collection, Jordan Wolfson and Spencer Sweeney. I can't believe and, I missed this oh, era. This is, oh this my is God. incredible. Elizabeth Neal and Uri I mean, and, it and was the, print, just, the print machine was uh, the print shop, so to speak, was literally in back of the bar. I mean, you didn't have to walk yeah, very far I to get these free drinks. I literally drove to upstate New York, bought a dual litho etching machine for a grand that Gavin paid for, and we brought it in to the city, uh, to Passerby. And we literally, like, and it was great because we were using like oil inks too. And so, literally, you know, it starts to work on the liver a little bit. So, a couple drinks in, when you're like doing print, you get drunk or quick, you know. So, it was nice because everyone you're doing prints with would just, we'd all get smashed together. It was oh, very. I mean, I mean, there's a certain kind of theme running through this from Chinatown and being kind of a landlord, doing these print projects, like working with artists to do prints with them, to then starting the gallery with an actual roster. Mm-hmm. And something that I'm not sure if, if people fully realize that your ability, and it's probably now that we see because you always have been and, and were and were to become. <laughs> you know, a fully formed artist was that you can speak with artists better than just about any gallerist I've ever met. And have you ever thought about that? Like, what is it? You just are able to, to, to have these intense, I'm not sure if they're healthy, but super, super intense direct connections with artists to kind of help them figure out what they're doing, both in the marketplace and also within their own work. Like, how do you think that developed for you? That's, I mean, you know, honestly, I think if there's one thing that I loved, love, love that I miss about being an art dealer is that is, is the working with artists and being, you know, when you're in a studio visit, you don't want to be in, it's just the worst experience ever. But when you're in that zone and the place you need to be and want to be working with artists are just the greatest because it's maybe it was that one year of the learning community at Sonoma State University, but like, holy shit there's so much psychology that's packed in there and you know if you could if you could cut out all the shit and get to the truth holy shit the work could get so good and and the freedom you know and the the power that 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 can do if you have a language that you can tap oh my god and so yeah i mean i really i i love you know, I mean, just over the years, I've, I've been on the, I've been kind of next to you. You've been on the phone with these folks, you know, mm-hmm. from from Brendan Fowler to more recently someone like Austin Wiener, like just kind of talking them through these kind of these kind of intense rapids that they've steered themselves into, and like helping them figure out how to find their own voice to navigate out of them. And it's it's like really an, an incredible skill. Um, fast forwarding and and passing over like important life events like getting married mm-hmm. having two children moving st- moving spaces stu- a few times st- yeah stutter step uh, yeah moving spaces having well, a business three partner three oh, children yeah. yeah excuse me uh stutter step upstate and then um what year did you decide to move permanently out to the eastern end of long island and open <laughs> rental in east hampton so i moved out to the Hamptons in 2018, I believe. 
and I, uh, I, my life at this moment was kind of a reality show where I had, uh, some would call it a bottom. I would maybe call it a, you know, an interesting, uh, reality show where I had nowhere to go, nothing to do. My business, I had, uh, again, you know, long story short, I had partnered with Zach Foyer and then that didn't work out. And, and so I found myself really without a, uh, without, uh, a gallery or I had my gallery, but I was, uh, I was losing my, my, uh, hmm, what's a good word. I was losing my, my passion my passion my passion my 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 lust for life my lust for the for the deal and so i knew i needed a change and you know at this moment with three children i was you know i was doing a little ambient doodling uh in the evening times and uh i slowly really started to put my attention towards the art making and realized that you know uh, if things went good i could maybe just do you know keep doing this uh, on the side and, and I could be really anywhere. And so, uh, you know, my wife is from Philadelphia. We thought about moving to Philadelphia. I thought about maybe Taos, New Mexico or Bisbee, Arizona, or maybe even Los Angeles. And we came out to the Hamptons and loved it and bought a little salt box house uh, for very inexpensive. And we literally just moved out and had no idea what we we're going to do. And one night I found myself playing poker uh, at Barbara Gladstone's Uptown Gallery. And across the table was Harper Levine, who I had met a couple times. And and he was telling me about the how's Hamptons his, and the space. And the what? How's Harper's poker game? Oh, uh, you know, it, when you're up against some of the players that were there that night. You don't want to say you know, who was there? <laughs> uh uh, I can say, I can, I can say this. I can say this. It's, at those games, even if you're losing your shirt, it's great just to be at that table. Got it. That's true. That's true. That's true. Um, that's true. That it was. Uh, <laughs> it was. You know, it's always a very spirited evening. Um, I should tell you some of my heavy stories one day. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Another time. Uh, I I saw a space. Uh, uh, right next to Harper that uh, was a, a bookseller before Glenn Horwitz bookseller. And it was available to rent. And it was literally, I've always, every space I've ever taken, I have literally scraped the tile off the floor myself. I have done the entire renovation maybe with somebody else, but I've always been involved. This space was done. It was perfect. Uh, floating walls, poured concrete floors the lighting was perfect and so i took this lease and i did a couple shows in the summer and i it was like the passion came back again you know i i always did good at art fairs and it was almost like a three-month art fair and then they call it tumbleweed tuesday and everyone leaves (laughs) and i got to be an artist Mm -hmm. and i thought holy god you know how did I get so lucky here? You found the program. You found the recipe for your happiness. Exactly. I, I was like, this rhythm works with my rhythm, you know? And uh, as El DeBarge said, you know, the rhythm of the night. And I found it. I had it. 
And I, it was incredible. And I, I did this, you know, for three years straight. And, and this summer actually will be the first summer that I, um, fortunately, unfortunately, it will not be a gallery. And I will continue to use the gallery as my studio because knock on wood, people seem to like what I do right now. Um, which is a fantastic segue, obviously. Absolutely. So, but I mean, I just love this notion of that, at least for the, for the intermediary, you're, you're allowed to kind of test out being a full-time working artist by having the gallery in the summers for three months and then nine months of the year everyone leaves you close the door lock it and turn the entire gallery into a into your painting studio to make your work exactly and it was it was wonderful i would put the butcher paper down on the floor and light some incense and then that represented you know it was time for me to get you know my my artist uh on and and uh you know and it was interesting because as it got closer and closer to the summer, you know, the dealer in me started to come back and I would start to compose and curate these shows in my head. And since there were so many people that loved art out here and artists and collectors and curators, so many people, I met more people out here that I, she won't mind that I, you know, speak of her because we're so close, but Netta Young was somebody that I tried to get into my gallery and the Lower East Side for I don't know how many shows and I moved out here and her and I became besties. I mean, she, she would come into the gallery every week. She's in town. We talk art, we talk life and you know, it was just this beautiful thing. And so, you know, I kind of really enjoyed being a part-time dealer and what, uh, you know, just to quickly say, uh, because life does change guys, as you know, and I realized when I was, moving you know kind of getting my head in this game uh early on things like seasonal and local were very bad words you know uh it definitely not what you wanted to present but as as i got older the thing that worked for me was having a seasonal gallery and literally caring about what local collectors were looking at and all of these things that were the bad words are now the good words and uh arguably the events of the past year have made uh seasonal and local uh a much more uh you know attractive thing to a lot of people uh if you know what I mean. yeah and especially if you're buying corn well, we're not going to talk about corn prices here. That's a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your life is so varied; it's so hard to condense it into even a logical narrative or or, or, or linear. Never mind logic; just something that's even semi-linear. But during these past three years that you had the gallery uh, in the in the summer months and were working, I mean, you started having some more shows internationally. Simon Lee, Simon Lee, Simon, and uh, and things start. You know, and I start hearing your name, my good friend, who I think of as an art dealer who's making work, and I like it. But I start having collectors being like, oh, we should we should acquire one of these for the collection. Like, these are really interesting. I'm thinking, yeah, they, they are getting really interesting. So I think Simon's part of that. Um, you had some other stuff with Niels Cantor in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and, you know, and I saw a switch in your head and you, 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 were, you, you started to become more of an artist. I can almost see it kind of switch over in you um, in terms of kind of how you were approaching the world and your and your own work. Um, and how did the, I mean, obviously you, you mentioned earlier that, that David Kordansky had been an early tenant of yours or, or colleague in Chinatown. Um, how did the conversation begin to think about sh- bringing your work back to LA on a big stage and to do a show with him? You stayed friendly with Dave over the years, right? You know, uh, the what? you stayed friendly with Dave over the years, but the, you know, when, when did the conversation about showing with the gallery start, I guess? Well, so, you know, Dave and I have had 
I mean, we've been so many things to each other. Uh, you know, yeah, I was his landlord. Uh, we were friends. We were not friends, uh, you know, when we were both, you know, when I was a very active art dealer. Uh, you know, we'd fight over artists. Like, I mean, my goodness, the 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 arc is intense with us. And yeah. uh, I had um, I had done I presented a solo booth of myself at Nada in Miami, and uh, and I did that only because literally I, it was so last minute and I couldn't put together another show. And I thought, hey, my paintings are not so bad. And I so I did this, and I had. Uh, he was at the main fair and I had posted a painting of me sitting with one of my paintings and he loved it. And this was uh, maybe two years, three years ago. And uh, he said, what is it? I said, it's my painting. I, 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 <laughs> I have a solo booth of my own art. And uh, he said, how much? I said, $8,000. And uh, he said, I'll take it for four. And I said, God bless you, you know? And, uh, and, and, you know, so rewind a little bit when I was lit, when we in Chinatown, Los Angeles, I had stored all my art and paintings and stuff in a friend's basement in Chinatown. And when I was, uh, he was moving or something, I had to get rid of all these paintings. And so I, one night, you know, very high on cocaine, I had a big party and invited friends and they all, took a bunch of paintings and so dave actually had he was there that night and had took a couple paintings and drawings and stuff like that and i guess he has one drawing that says most art dealers must be attractive and he keeps that in his closet and um and he so when he bought this painting i was like oh my god you know this guy like has like five of my works now your biggest collector right yeah for real and and literally, I would say six months later, I did a painting of uh, a menorah in kind of snakes and stuff. And he bought that one. And at this point, wow. they were 12 grand. And I think he gave me six. Wow. And uh, and so slow, slowly he started to buy work. And then he said, you know, I think when he originally began to uh, he bought the building next door and was going to build out this new space, I think he really started to consider me for showing there. And I think as time went on and, you know, I got a little more confident and the paintings got a little more, uh, you know, quality to them, uh, you know, one thing led to another and, and he offered me a show. Um, and it was, uh, am I wrong to say that it was a, a really successful show? The show sold out. I mean, I'm looking, I'm looking right at the images as we speak. And uh, I mean, it's pretty stunning. Um, were you surprised yeah, no, by they, how successful it was? I was. I was surprised. You know, so the paintings, uh, you know, I do these paintings and I'd show them to Dave and Dave would say, you know, this is L.A. Get deeper. Go deeper. You know, get into the get in your childhood. And so I really I went there, you know, and, and uh, you know, there were, I would say, six more paintings that didn't actually make in that show. And when we were hanging the show. Uh, we, the little amount of paintings that we showed in the show, I was like, oh, but you're not going to show the Mercedes symbol on fire and spells mom and all this Michigas. And the show was just like seeing the work in that way and this kind of uh, a bit step back and, and austere than how I normally approach the work. I said, hey, man, this looks pretty good. 
this is not so bad if I say so myself. I mean, working and, with uh, a good art dealer is kind of like working with a great editor in a way. It's not about what they add, but what they're able to take out for the artist, maybe. It's true. It's true. And they really know. I mean, that's the thing. It's just, it's like a, it's a second language. It's a natural language. And, and you, when you both speak that language, it's so wonderful and fluid. And, um, and yeah, it went great. People seemed to like it and they gave me real money. And, you know, it's, it's like, I, you know, I, I, I want to talk about I'm one grateful. painting kind of in, in particular real quickly before we, we wrap things up. And it's this painting, it's uh, the background of these palm leaves, similar at least to me, to those in like the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel. And then yes. over top, it says <laughs> in and out uh, written, uh, written seemingly in uh, this wonderfully kind of 3d painted uh, combination of ketchup and mustard in and out, obviously referencing uh, the great West coast burger chain. Um, what are these two, how do these two things work for you in relationship to each other? So, you know, not to, uh, you know, say too much, but, you know, the Beverly Hills uh, wallpaper, you know, again, I, I would say this, you know, when I was young and my parents were going through their divorce, my father had a, a nervous breakdown uh, at brunch there one day. And, you know, I had to chase after him as he was crying down the streets of like, you know, Rexford. And, and I remember scraping my nails and digging this fucking wallpaper into my nails, you know, this like jungle green and the vision of this wallpaper, you know, like it's a symbol of luxury and, and kind of you've made it. And to me, it's just fucking terror and horror and, and pain. And, you know, as I sit here now at the age of, I don't know, I'm somewhere in my forties, I have this jungle green under my nails, but you see this time around, I'm in making up the narrative. Right. Um, so, you know, that's where those leaves come from. And, and uh, you know, they, they're quite loaded for me. Um, and the ketchup and mustard, you know, the in and out, I just kind of liked also that, you know, you could think of it in a, like a sexy kind of way. But, uh, you know, I really like the idea that people could find joy in these works. And, you know, I, I am a populist, right? I, I want people enjoy it and connect with this imagery and you know there's a lot that's behind this imagery for me on a personal way but but also that that i want these things and this this the the text is very important that that it connects with people and feel people feel comfortable with these with these images and objects so you know i'm just trying to make people happy and i think you clearly did that with these i mean they, they flew off um and it were kind of in a moment where where artists that that uh such as yourself where it's like there's so much like i don't know about heat but there's so much like desire people really want things right now i'm not sure if it's something about the pandemic about being so cut off from everything else and they kind of want almost a piece of you i mean how are you i mean coming as a dealer and having seen this on the other side, I mean, you were around through like a whole bunch of very moments that were really hot for, for different artists you worked with or, or knew about. Is it, is it exhilarating? Is it scary? Like, how are you just kind of like on a day-to-day deal with it? Or you just, do you just not think about it and leave it all up to your dealers? It's their job now. Well, it's funny because, you know, uh, I, I think about, I've seen the arc, so many artists and I, you know, I, I've seen the tales. I've, I've, I've seen it all, you know, um, and I've seen, you know, 
uh, where, you know, things, mistakes are made or maybe from things like fear. And, you know, I've gotten to a place where I don't want to apologize for being an artist anymore. And uh, that's kind of been a big thing is that, you know, uh, I this is who I am now. And uh, there is definitely a, a, an aspect of it, which is I'm keeping my head down. But, uh, you know, uh, as the serenity prayer goes, God grant me the strength to, uh, you know, tell the, the difference of what I can control. Right. And, and so if there are things I can be that I can participate in in my career, I'm going to do that. And, and other places where I'm going to let the dealers do the dealing, I'm going to do that, too. But um, I am certainly not afraid because this is all just like a gift. And if they take it all away from me tomorrow, you know, I'll, I'll write a book. You should write a book anyway, Joel. (laughs) I think people would love to read that. Joel, thank you so much. We loved having your words. Thanks for being the first guest on Nota Bene. Nota Bene, out.